Hey, something really cool happened. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 was selected as one of Feedspot.com's top 20 K-12 education podcasts. Thanks so much, Feedspot. Go to blog.feedspot.com slash K-12 underscore education underscore podcast to see the whole list. This is so awesome. Hi, I'm Kim Polishuk. And I'm Jen Giffen from Shooks and Giff, the podcast. A part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Jeremy S. Adams. He's written an amazing practical book called Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships. By the way, did you know that this is episode 300? <gasps> That's right, 300. Did you say 300? Yes, I said 300. Nah, nah. <laughs> I made it to episode 300. It's pretty cool considering the fact that many podcasts don't make it past episode 7 or even 10. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. And I couldn't have done it without you. So thank you so very much for being a part of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And uh, don't forget to share and subscribe. And remember, today, you've got an amazing interview with Jeremy S. Adams talking about Riding the Wave, incredible practical book that you're going to want to read and make it part of your library. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to share and subscribe. <laughs> Enjoy. Episode 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, yeah, dude. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading, K-12, now here's Steve with this week's show. Jeremy S. Adams is a high school and university teacher living in Bakersfield, California. He and his writing have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, C-SPAN, the Sacramento Bee, and numerous national education podcasts. Mr. Adams has won numerous accolades for his teaching and writing efforts, including the 2014 California State Teacher of the Year Award, Daughters of the American Revolution, the 2012 Kern County Teacher of the Year Award, was a 2013 semifinalist for the California Department of Education's California Teacher of the Year Award, and was a finalist in 2014 for a Carlston Family Foundation National Teacher Award. He was recognized in 2014 by the California State Senate for his achievements in education. He was a 2018 CSUB, or California State University Bakersfield, Hall of Fame inductee, the first classroom teacher ever inducted into the history of this, into this in the history of the school. And uh, Jeremy received his bachelor's degree in politics from Washington and Lee University and his master's degree in education curriculum instruction from California State University, Bakersfield, where he was named the outstanding student in the School of Education. He is also an education speaker and has spoken to large education groups and conferences across the country. In addition, Jeremy is the author of Full Classrooms, Empty Selves, and The Secrets of Timeless Teachers. Today, we're going to focus on his latest book, Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships. By the way, Jeremy previously appeared on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 in episodes 123 for Full Classrooms, Empty Selves, and 103, The Secrets of Timeless Teachers. Jeremy, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Steve, for having me back. It's a real pleasure to be on with you again. Can't wait to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, and glad you're here, and uh, kudos on all that. And, and uh, bef before we get into your book, I do have to point out, I'd, I'd always, and, I, and I've had you tell this story before, but one of the things that's really cool is that you went 
you decided to go to college on each of the coasts of the United States, which I think is, <laughs> you're in the East and the West, right? Yes. 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 <laughs> Very cool. That's, uh, I just had to see the country, I guess, there. We, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I just like pointing. So my, pointing my, my father wanted me to go to the best liberal arts college. My, my, no, that's fine. Yeah, my, my, my father loves the liberal arts and, uh, you know, um, the best liberal arts college I could get into was in Virginia. So I went. It's very, pretty simple calculus there. Nice. It works. So, yeah. so, you know, I gotta, I gotta tell you, congrats on your newest book, Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships, um, just published this year. Let, let's start by talking about you as a teacher, though. What do you like best about working with kids? Oh, I, there's no question. The best thing about working with kids is it keeps me young. Uh, I just had a birthday the other day, uh, so I'm now 44, or as my, thank you, or as my 10-year-old likes to say, you're halfway to 88. Um, <laughs> nice. nice. Uh, the, the best thing about teaching is it, does, it keeps me young. Um, you know, one of the things that I've really missed about the classroom since we had to go on quarantine and kind of abruptly in the school year was just that contact with young senses of humor. Uh, young perspectives, uh, the energy of young people is contagious. And as I get older, I need that energy. Um, you know, I can't always get it by drinking Red Bull. So, you know, the fact is it keeps me young. Uh, and also, you know, this is the great thing is I, I get to learn something new. Uh, even if it's kind of, you know, silly stuff or it's a meme or it's a, a, a new expression, uh, whatever it is, you know, teaching really does give me kind of a new perspective on all kinds of issues. That's so awesome. And you're so right. And I, I think a great example is uh, your son. <laughs> That's, uh, oh, there's a perfect example of it, you know, right there about keeping you. <laughs> well, I, would say, I would say he keeps me on my toes. Uh, and I think my son ages me more than keeps me young. But my students uh, definitely keep me young. No question about that. Nice, nice. The, uh, you know, you've been teaching for a few years now. If you could go back to your first year and whisper in your ear a piece of advice, what would you tell you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you, know, I would, you know what I'd probably say, Steve, is that I would say to myself, get rid of your epic sense of destiny. Uh, you know, I, I was so certain I was going to be everybody's favorite teacher. Uh, you know, because, you know, I think anybody who teaches probably had one or two teachers who changed the trajectory of your life. Um, that you, know, you didn't know that you were walking onto an intersection uh, and that a, a teacher kind of guided you towards you know, a direction that, that you didn't even know was possible. Maybe a path had been hidden or you know, there were some shrubs in the way of the path and they kind of clear the brush and say, hey, this is a possibility of life for you. And it makes your life more wondrous and kind of more extraordinary in a way that you never imagined it. And, that's why we love teachers. That's, I mean, teachers are inherent optimists, right? They, they essentially show us a higher plane of understanding and of life than, than what we understood was there. And I thought I was going to kind of clear that brush for everybody. Um, and, you know, it's kind of uh, humbling. Uh, you have to assume a posture of humility uh, after a few years and realize, look, um, you know, that, that, that student didn't necessarily take much from your class or they didn't particularly like you. Uh, I don't apologize, by the way, for wanting my students to like my class. I don't. I, I want my students to enjoy it. I want them to learn from it. I, I hope they enjoy being around me because I like being around most of them. Uh, and, and so I don't apologize for that. I, I found that the best teachers I had desperately cared what their students thought. I mean, not so much that I'm going to sit there and, you know, show you know, Titanic every day in class or anything. I'm not going to listen to them to that extent, but I do care what they think. Um, 
And you know, the other thing I would say to myself, uh, my younger self, my, you know, uh, half my life ago, I'm 44, I started teaching when I was 22. Um, and so I guess what I would say to my 22 year old self is, you know, remember that you don't get to control what the kids remember of you and your class, right? Which can be dangerous. Uh, I remember um, when I was young, they used to have me do all of these silly skits at the rallies. And I would, you know, they, they even had me do a, you know, Britney Spears dance to nice. it again. And uh, I did a chicken eating competition against all of these other teachers. And I, I, I did break dancing. And so, you know, when you're young, you're silly, um, you know, you do all those things. It's kind of like hazing the, the young staff members before they have tenure. <laughs> Uh, but the truth is, you know, I encounter students and that's what they remember. You know, they don't remember the great lecture on Alexander Hamilton. They don't remember, uh, you know, the great class on, you know, the difference between Shakespearean tragedy and Greek tragedy. No, 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 no. They remember Mr. Adams uh, doing Oops, I Did It Again in front of 2,000 people at a rally. So I would tell myself, you don't get to, you don't get to control what they remember. So do a good job every day because you don't you don't get to control it. They're going to remember the bad days probably more so than the good days. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. That is so awesome because you're so right. And that's, that's a part of, of teaching that, uh, you know, to me can't ever be replaced with a computer, which is that human interaction. And I, that's what you're going to get into in, in your book, which is really cool too. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's so cool because you're so right. I have, I have to tell you, cause that's one of the things that, you know, you have to really be careful. That's great advice because uh, you never know what it is they're going to remember. And it, it might be the day that you literally, you know, when uh, I used to use, uh, I, I like theatrics and I discovered in my younger days that there was a theatrical supply warehouse, not too far from the school where I was working and they had pyrotechnics that you could buy. And I oh. discovered, and I, and I had this character that I used when I introduced certain topics and, uh, I would have a little flash go off and uh, you know, it was kind of funny because uh, one day I used too much powder mixed with the flash paper and the flash cotton and I set off the alarms, the, 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 the fire alarms went off. And that's what the kids remember is when I, not the whole thing that went with that topic, but was when I set off the alarms in the building. The principal is used to me though. He's like, tell me that was you. And I said, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they're not going to remember the actual class that you were trying nope. to highlight. No, I remember I did, I did something similar where uh, I had a, we were getting ready for AP tests. And this is, man, this is years ago. This had to be 15 years ago. And I told the students, you know, my first period, you guys are all late all the time. Some of you missing class. If I can get everybody to show up on time for a week, after the AP test, we can have a waffle party in here. I don't care what we do because it's first period. And they all showed up for a week. And so I said, fine, we'll have the waffle party. But those take so much energy that we, we, we essentially shut down the entire building. Like all the, like, you know, it, it flicked the breaker. Nice. And so nobody had any power for hours because I was having a waffle party. So, yeah, they, they, they're going to remember that. They're probably going to remember those things for sure. That's awesome. I, I love that. That's, so why did we lose power today? Uh, that would be Mr. Adams and his waffle party. Waffle party. <laughs> But I still say that's good teaching because you know what? It got everybody there to do the review, to master the content. So I, I definitely am not apologetic for that uh, at all. As well as you shouldn't be. I love it. Love it. The, uh, it, it. Unfortunately, in this world that we're in right now, um, and we've been in it for a while in the, at the recording of uh, this interview, we, uh, in March, you posted an article in the Educator's Room, and this article was titled teaching in the midst of the coronavirus and you started your story this way 
On Friday afternoon, everyone in my classroom suddenly fell silent as we waited for the bell to ring. I'll see everyone on Monday, I hope, but who knows? Can you talk a little about what you were talking about, the article and the thoughts and feelings of the kids and kind of where they are now? Because yeah, you had the uh, older kids. Yeah, that's, uh, I remember our last day of class was St. Patrick's Day. Um, so we're coming up, you know, the taping of this is in the middle of June. Um, we're coming up on the three month anniversary and wow, have things changed. Um, when I wrote that article, uh, the number one thing I was talking about was the fact that teachers by their nature uh, are a very regimented group of people, right? I mean, we live by these very regimented, clearly delineated uh, parameters, right? The school year starts on this date. The school year ends on this date. First period goes from this minute to this minute. This is, these are the weeks when we study this concept. This is the date of your exam, right? And so, you know, this is graduation. So you have all these days on your calendar. And as teachers and even as students, we really learn that, you know, we kind of teach from vacation to vacation. Um, and we kind of know that, that time is running out. I mean, I always think of the school year as kind of a, a microcosm of life, which is that, you know, there's so much you got to get through. Uh, there's so many experiences you want to share with your students, but you know time's running out. Uh, there are only so many, you know, specks of sand in the hourglass. Um, but I didn't realize how few there were this year. And uh, I, I find it to be uh, very, very sad for a lot of those students. Uh, one of the things that has kind of bothered me a little bit is, you know, a lot of these, these eighth graders or these seniors in high school or college, you know, I've heard some, some adults say, you know, this is good for you. This is a metaphor for life, you know, get over it. This is the worst thing that ever happens to you. Uh, deal with it. Don't be snowflakes. And I, and I get that. I mean, this is not, you know, you're not, this is not going away to war. But on the other hand, I, I do think that when I wrote that article, you know, I didn't appreciate the fact that so many of these moments in our lives, you know, like graduations, baptisms, weddings, um, birthdays. I mean, sometimes you can't articulate why these days are important but they are, and they're a blessing. I think they're kind of a, I think they're kind of a benign delineation of, of, of the passage of time and how lucky we are to be alive and, and to go through these things and to go through the things that we imagined our whole lives. When you're young, you, you fantasize about, well, what's my graduation gonna be like? What's my senior prom gonna be like? What's, you know, what, what's it gonna be like when I'm signing my yearbook with my senior friends? And to kind of have all those things ripped away from you, then those totems are taken away. Um, and, and I think it's okay for young people to be frustrated by it. You know, sometimes it's necessary to go, you know, howl at the moon or yell into the wind or push up against the ocean. That's okay. Um, and, and I think that uncertainty uh, breeds frustration. And I think it's okay to feel that. I, I really do. Um, and I, and I, even today, I'm sure the people, all the teachers who are listening to this podcast eventually in their cars and, you know, in the gyms or wherever they listen to this podcast, you know, maybe you'll know by the time you listen to this what's going to happen to the you know 2020 2021 school year but as of right now i don't even know what my job's going to look like in the future um and i find that to be um kind of deflating and kind of worrisome understand it you know it's uh it's interesting because i i think about you know i have a similar reaction when people would say yeah they just need to get over it well when you're a, a junior and senior in high school and there are certain things because you know, that's my whole career is focused on high school. And uh, I was a history teacher in high school and, uh, you know, worked with the kids and I was a assistant principal in high school and I was a principal in high schools. And 
you know, and there's so many aspects of our world that you have this common experience with others if they graduated from an American high school, which is, you know, stuff that happens during your junior and senior years as you're getting ready to, and even just from high school all throughout, from ninth through that senior year. And when those go away, it's amazing how really, you know, whether they're important to them now or five years later, <laughs> you know, cause for some of them, they just want to get on, just let me go. All right. Yeah, but, you, don't, you don't realize that it's important until later. That's absolutely true. That's a great point. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, I think about some as a principal, when you do some of those things, your job is to make sure it happens. It happens without incident. <laughs> and you just, you're really hoping that once the next morning is over with, that everybody went home and went to bed and we're all good and then nothing else happened. <laughs> and, but it's funny because even your experiences in those time moments with them are funny because you get to experience some of the things like, you know, I'll, I'll never forget a prom where, um, some of the guys came to me and said, you're not going to believe it, but so-and-so is, uh, he's gotten into an argument with somebody and we're just afraid. And these are kids talking to me. All right. And I'm like, and I'm at this school, I'm an assistant principal and I'm the bad guy. I'm, I'm bad cop. And <laughs> so they come to me cause they know that I'm going to keep him from getting into a fight. And I, I went to him and he couldn't go anywhere because he had ridden with all these people on a bus together to prom. And Basically, I'm not sure it had to do with a girl, this sort of thing. And, and his ride has to, he has to wait until the ride can go. And he's been arguing with him and this is going to turn into something because he's gotten into fights. Anyway, what ends up happening is I go to him and I said, Hey, he goes, Mr. Mulatto, please tell me what, what, <laughs> what do you need to see me about? And I said, I said, I, I think I'm going to be your date for the rest of the night. He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm not going to let you get into a fight because you get in a fight of this, you're going to get suspended. And you're not going to graduate, man. <laughs> and I said, I said, so you just, you just need to understand something. Either I spend the rest of the time until your bus leaves with you or, uh, or we just go ahead and suspend you. <laughs> you know, we had a, that type of conversation. I forget yeah. most of, He's like, fine. <laughs> and, and so I spent for about 45 minutes to an hour, somewhere in that range, walking around away from the main part of the prom with this young man to keep him away from the other guys that the problem was stemming with. And he survived, moved on. And, uh, who knows <laughs> that's like, that's what a crazy prom story. I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, you know, sometimes they say that for administrators, you're just putting out fires, but in that instance, you were trying to make yourself a fire didn't even emerge in the first place. Right. Yes, exactly. And yet you just always have something like that and you just never know what's going to happen. And, and some of their experiences are just, yeah, you know, there's, there's all the good stuff that happens and the things that you can't repeat. You, you just, you, you're not going to experience again because you're not part of that group anymore. And yeah, well, I, I've learned, to, I've learned, to st I, I've stopped chaperoning the dances because all the, the inappropriate dancing drives me up the wall. So I, I, I just, I can't even get after they've danced like that on Saturday night. I kind of put my, I, I, I literally don't put my head down. I just don't even go anymore. I, I don't want to know. <laughs> Well, when you don't have a chance, a choice and you're required to be there, it's one of those things that, yes, I'm not so sure that when I was getting my degrees long time ago that I thought that part of my evening would be stop dancing like that. <laughs> and I yeah. learned. A and that's, that's a lot of what my book is about, by the way, is like all the things we have to do as teachers that we never imagined we'd, we'd have to do. Um, I mean, I've thought to myself so many times in the last five years, of, I never thought I would be dealing with fill in the blank when I started teaching in 1998. 
That's funny. It's cool. Good stuff. Cause you're right. You just, there's so much that's part of it that you don't realize uh, that's just going to become part of it. And by the way, as a note, I learned how to stop some of that dancing is there are some songs that will make the kids all stop and just either clear the dance floor or look and kind of look like, really, this is the music you're playing. And so I, I'd made sure DJs understood something that if I come to you and I request a song, you're going to play that song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it wasn't anything goofy. It was just like just something totally not in the the vein of being able to dance that way. So yeah, well, instead of going out there and freaking out and and, and pulling kids apart, I guess just playing some Kenny Rogers. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of the sign that you know maybe we've been dancing inappropriately too long here. Exactly. Exactly. See, that's what you that's what you got to do. <laughs> so good stuff. You, you can still have fun with it that way too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um. So let let let's start. Uh, Let's start going in and uh, shifting to your latest book, Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships. In the introduction, you explain the focus of riding the wave and a comment from your brother is also a teacher. He said, by the way, to the audience, I think this is so cool because your dad's history teacher, your brother's history teacher, and My you're brother. a history teacher. And no, your no, mother no. also. Well, she was a special ed teacher, but she was a teacher. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's what, what I got to ask a business, Yeah. I got to ask a question. Did you ever have, and what were your family conversations like at the dinner table? I mean, what do you, do you talk about uh, work? Well, it's tough because I had four older brothers and sisters, but they were quite a bit older than me, right? So, you know, my, my closest sibling, I think, is 11 or 12 years older. So it was a very lonely affair because my mother and father would be to my left and to my right, and they had nobody to beat up on besides me. <laughs> um, I think that's where all my low self-esteem comes from is just getting beat up. Uh, you know, my, uh, actually my parents oftentimes would just, you know, uh, they would just kind of have their conversations and I would listen and that, you know, that's, that's something that I, I actually look back on and I joke about it. My parents didn't beat up on me at all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, when they were frustrated with me, I mean, there was nobody to save me. I couldn't divert their attention to a sibling or anything. Um, but you know, but I think it was great to kind of listen to my parents talk about adult issues. Um, I mean, I think one of the big problems we have in our society today is so many young people are not around adults. Um, and when you're not around adults, you don't absorb the values, the behaviors, uh, and the expectations of adult life. Uh, and so, you know, I make jokes about it, but I think it was good to be raised by kind of older parents um, who were both teachers. That's very cool. Very cool. So, and so in the, let's shift back to the book. So in the introduction, you explained the focus of riding the wave through a comment from your brother who said, the problem with the constancy of change for us teachers is that after a while, it eventually just becomes noise. This is daunting on a million different levels, but the worst part is teachers who can't cut through the noise never flourish. They just get by. Could you talk about his thoughts? Yeah, sure. Well, his thoughts are why I wrote the book. Um, you know, when you decide to write a book, which is quite, you know, it's a huge undertaking. Uh, and especially if you have three children and you know, you teach high school and you teach college and your wife, you know, works full time. Um, you know, it's going to be a sacrifice. And so I, you know, I wanted a big palette and I wanted to write a book about what I thought was the absolute most important issue and vexing concern of modern day teachers. And that is that we keep being asked to do more and more and more. Uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the title of the book, which I didn't come up with, my wonderful publishers at Solution Tree did, I think riding the wave is perfect because if you think about it, Steve, what is teaching nowadays? Teaching is the first day of school. You walk out to the water's edge and you look out and you don't get to control the waves that are coming at you. And some of those waves are minor. Some of those waves are humongous, um, but you don't choose them. 
And one of the things that happens over time is that there are more and more ways coming at us as teachers. And, and you see that, the, you know, that is something that I feel very passionately about is that we are not imagining that the job is getting harder. It is getting harder to be a teacher in this country. 65% of teachers today feel they're getting burned out. 85%, this is an extraordinary statistic, Steve. 85% of teachers feel like their job today is unsustainable. A half, 50% of teachers have lost enthusiasm for their job. And the most upsetting, damning statistic of our era is that for the first time in American history, a majority of Americans would not want their own children to become teachers. 54%. Now, that is not a statement against teachers. It's a statement about the teaching profession and how hard it's getting and how high the waves are and how often they're coming at us. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to write a book about these waves, these constant waves of change. Because here's the deal. Anybody who's, I mean, I'm from California. And so, you know, I, I, I think of the beach and, and, you know, there's when a big wave is coming at you, Steve, there's two things you can do. Either you can put your head down and just get slammed by the wave and it just kind of pushes you along, or you can time it right and have the skill set so that you can kind of, it doesn't matter if you're surfing or boogie boarding, so you can ride the wave. And that's exhilarating when it happens. And I want teachers to feel that kind of pang of exhilaration, of quality, extraordinary, life-altering, tilting the universe teaching that can happen every now and then. But if teachers don't know how to ride these waves, if they just keep putting their head down and saying, I can't take it anymore, then our jobs are not going to be as fulfilling as they were before all of these changes came at us. Um, and, and the book really focuses on relationships. Um, you know, the, the things that make life meaningful, I would argue, are our are, are relationships. Um, and I'll talk about that probably a little bit more in this interview. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's, that's why I, I wrote the book, is to, to make it so that the constancy of change is something that we can see as an opportunity to get better, to put more kind of pedagogical arrows in our, in our quiver, if you will, uh, as, as professionals. Um, and so, and you know, also, I mean, <laughs> to be perfectly blunt with you, uh, you know, I, the COVID-19 crisis, I would never have wanted my book to come out in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the theme of the book, dealing with unexpected changes and flourishing in the midst of it, it's a pretty dang good theme uh, for this time period. You got that right. Yeah, a lot of people right. have been like, what did you know when you were writing this <laughs> book, you know, 18 months ago? Very much so, because it's, as I was reading, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, yeah, okay, you're a little scary, Jeremy. This is what's... <laughs> the, uh, Call me Nostradamus. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, it's such a powerful way to begin because it's so, so right on the money with the, the world that we're, we're dealing with and have been dealing with over the time. And just that, that sheer, uh, this, how scary that is that so many people would tell their children, yeah, don't, don't become a teacher. It's not, not in your path. It shouldn't be in your path right now. That's yeah, it's harder The pay, the instability, the thanklessness of it. Um, and I, and I think it's reflecting that. I mean, it, it is, it is the case. I feel like, you know, our, our plates don't get any bigger, but we just keep on stacking higher and higher and higher all the things that teachers are expected to do in a classroom. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, you think of schools and education as the same thing. They're not. Education is just one of a million things that schools do nowadays. And, and so um, that's, that's something that we have to deal with as educators. Very much so. Very much so. I know that my next question is still in the beginning of your book. 
Because, <laughs> by the way, I could have done hours just yeah. in the beginning of your book. I'm glad you love the beginning. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I love it. And, uh, but I can't go further without talking about this comment. Teachers who enjoy the profession and prosper in it do so because of the relationships they cultivate. Please put this in context for listeners. Well, I mean, there, the, the book is, is, is written about the five key relationships in education. And, you know, what essentially, I, I, the way I organized the book was, you know, you have the, the, this, this circle, right? And, and all these kind of concentric circles. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But we have to deal with the fact that all these changes are putting pressure on these relationships. And the first one is simply just our relationship with ourselves. Um, you know, how we feel about our jobs, how we feel about the profession, how we're dealing with it. And then you kind of, you broaden it out and there's going to be pressure placed on the relationship between teachers and their students. You take another step back, you have the relationship between teachers and teachers and, you know, colleagues, another step back and you have the relationship between teachers and administrators. And finally, the, 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 the biggest relationship of all is kind of the relationship between teachers and the public, the community. And constant change puts pressure on those relationships. Um, and, and I would tell you that, you know, not to get too philosophical or make myself into Socrates or Jesus or anything, but I would tell you that most meaningful lives have a heavy, kind of a heady component of, of relationships to them. Um, and, you know, to me, those, my students, with my colleagues, with my bosses, with the wider community, if those are sour, if those become toxic, then I'm just not going to flourish as a teacher anymore. Uh, and there's an axiom that's absolutely the case, which is if teachers are not at their best, then our students are not going to be at their best. And think about all the things that don't work if our schools don't work, right? An individual human life doesn't work that's not educated. Democracy doesn't work. A commercial society doesn't work. Uh, the values of a liberal society, a classically liberal society, uh, don't work. And so a lot's riding on the classroom. Uh, and I want teachers to feel good about their profession. And that means having a solid relationship in all these different uh, ways. Um, and, and the other thing to keep in mind, Steve, I would say is, you know, as teachers, we don't have trophies, right? Uh, we have these great relationships, hopefully. That, 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 you know, my wife is an attorney and she has clients. I have a friend who's a doctor, he has patients. You have authors who have best-selling books or painters and their paintings or, you know, musicians and their symphonies. We don't have that. We have the legacy of, of our students and the relationship we have with them. And if we don't cultivate that relationship in a really good way, uh, then I feel like we're not going to flourish as educators or as human beings. I just so agree with that. I, I think it's just, it's so powerful because it is so important. It's such a huge part. And, it's, and to me, it's why, you know, right, right now, you know, we, we're not too sure what our world's going to look like because there are those who I think think this is a time in which it says that, yes, yeah, see, the computer can be the teacher. <laughs> and, you know, what it lacks is that be, ability to have the relationships, to be able to deal with whatever it is that the kid comes to school with that day or doesn't. And those types of things, even just that being able to have that uh, family conversation at the dinner table that doesn't exist, but exists within that classroom. Right. I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I've said before, I think, you know, I think obviously the most quite human of human relationships is probably parenting, right? It's kind of renewing the species. But I, but I do think though that, that teaching is, is, a, is a close second uh, as far as the humanity of the relationship because you are trying to imbue young people with a battery of knowledge and disposition and skills and relationships that empower them to kind of be a, a slingshot, you know, and to, to live a, a really good life. 
Um, and I always think of schools as kind of launch pads. Um, our students have a lot of intelligence and verve and vivacity and passion, uh, and that's their booster rocket. But you've got to frame it, right? Otherwise, that, when that booster rocket goes off, it, it can end in disaster if you don't frame it correctly. And that's what good teaching and good educational systems do, is we're launch pads. Uh, but those launch pads are relational. Uh, and so, um, you know, you're right. I, I don't believe, I, I think distance learning has its place. I think technology has its place. But to me, technology will never take the place of a teacher. It's a tool, not a replacement. So much so, so much so. And I, you know, and if nothing else, just to be able to have that moment when speaking of those things that they remember is like the day you make the mistake and you, and you deal with however you make the mistake that you dealt with. You said yeah. something wrong or something that sounds goofy the way you said it. And, and instead of getting upset at them, you say, yeah, that's good. Let's move on. And, you know, or whatever, or I'll find out the answer or, you know, however you solve it. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny because just something simple as that, how powerful it can be for kids who, who remember how you solved something that could have been, you know, in, in another adult's world, could have been so aggravating that you got mad at somebody or shut down or whatever, and instead <clears throat> you solve it this other way. And so they get to see the human interaction and how we solve things and interact with others, which, you know, you, you wonderfully got uh, described earlier. So good stuff. I, so let's start going into a couple of chapters. You know, chapter one is titled Recognizing the Need for Self-Care and chapter two is practicing self-care. You note an era of constant and unending change in education you know, places unique pressures and burdens on teachers as individuals. What do you mean by self-care? And let's delve into the comment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that this goes to the heart of some of the statistics I was talking about earlier, uh, which is how do individual teachers feel about their profession? Uh, and I think one of the things that we have to be honest about is that we are going to feel overwhelmed sometimes and we are going to feel frustrated at times. The solution is not to deny those feelings. And it's, it's certainly not to uh, kind of demure and say, well, you know, maybe this is just kind of what the profession looks like nowadays, get over it. No, I think we have to accept it. Uh, I mean, there's no way to ride a wave if you don't accept that it's coming at you, right? Um, and, and I think that just kind of owning that and, and being aware that it's, it's, it's going to be getting harder. And that's probably, probably, Steve, the trajectory is not going to change. Uh, you know, I keep saying, you know, whenever I go out and I give a speech, the one line that I always know will get an applause is when I say, you know, there's, if there's one certitude about modern day teaching, it is that as our society has sat down, we are expected to stand up, right? So every failing of civil society writ large is something that finds its way into the schools and say, well, now you educators, you teachers, you schools have to address this. If it's the emotional problems of our students, if it's the violence of our students, if it's the lack of um, uh, counseling for our students, lack of meals for our students, the poverty they're coming from, the abuse that they're dealing with. Um, I mean, you name it, and these burdens end up at a school. And and teachers feel that. Uh, you know, one, one of the metaphors I, I like to kind of talk about is, you know, teaching nowadays feels like driving around in the middle of a, of a storm where you get, uh, you know, a, a bunch of, a bunch of kind of, you know, trash and, and you get all these things whirling about. And then all of a sudden you get this big wall and all the trash and all the tumbleweeds end up on that wall. They can't make it past the wall, but you know, all the wind and the storm, it makes it all right there. Well, that wall is now a school and everything ends up here. And I, I think it's heroic that teachers look at it and say, okay, all these problems, all these issues, 
we love our students and if we that's what this job means nowadays it doesn't mean just teaching curriculum it means it means educating the whole child it means trying to optimize optimism it means remembering that you teach a, 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 a student not a subject necessarily uh it means all of these things uh and so that's what i mean by self-care it's good stuff you know i i just with each chapter it pulls you in as a reader more and more and just kudos to you Jeremy, it's, it's, it's awesome the, what you put in writing here. The, uh, in, in chapter three, it's titled Understanding Stress Among the Deaths. You note, when a problem arises in society, either it manifests itself in schools or society looks to the schools to solve it, which you've talked a little bit about. Yeah. Could you connect this to the impact of the never-ending to-do list? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really essential part of the book where you, you have to understand that um, there is so much that teachers have to monitor, right? And so it used to just be, uh, there's kind of been this interesting pivot uh, in, in the way we think of educational philosophy. It used to be that we told students, look, I don't care what you, how you like to learn. If you like to learn by reading or you like to learn through lecture, or you like to learn through projects, you have to adapt to what the teacher wants you to do, right? And I think there are a few things to take away from this. One is nowadays teachers are the ones who have to adapt. And we're told, look, you have 40 kids in a classroom. They all like to learn differently. They all have different issues. Uh, and, and one of the things you have to do as a teacher is sometimes you have to find the good in things that you're not used to finding, right? So maybe I like to see a kid who can write well. Well, maybe they don't, they don't show that they learn in that way. Maybe they do it through a multiple choice test, or maybe they do it through discussion, or maybe they do it through, you know, asking you for a different book to read. And I, I think that, that that issue about kind of the stress amongst the desks is real because you are monitoring so many different variables of so many different students in so many different ways. In fact, there's a page of the book where just kind of as an exercise, I have an entire page of different expectations that are going on in the classroom. Like I would tell you, Steve, if you took 10 teachers and you said, okay, what is the number one thing as an educator you are trying to achieve? I guarantee you'd probably get 10 different answers. Right, and all of them are valid, by the way. I mean, you might go to a math teacher and then say, well, I'm trying to get higher order thinking. And then you might get an English teacher who says, well, I'm trying to figure out better forms of communication. And then you might get somebody who says, well, they need to learn how to write. And then you get uh, you know, somebody like me who says, well, I'm trying to prepare them to be a citizen in a, in a democratic society. Or somebody might say, well, they need to acquire habits, right? It's not about the subjects, about the habits of taking responsibility. So, you know, there's so much going on um, that there is this stress amongst the desks, desks. And, uh, and, and the list that I write in the book could have been five times as long. Um, and, and I'm just talking about the things that you have to do in a classroom. Let, we're not even talking about all the responsibilities outside of the classroom that you now have. Um, and so that's, that's a very real thing. And, I, and I, you know, I increasingly find that I can't ever leave my job. Uh, this is one of the bad things about, you know, having cell phones is that it's always connected to email. It's, uh, you have all these apps now where you can communicate with students at, at all hours so they can communicate with you, um, you know, and, and it, it can be really overwhelming. It can. Very much so. Yeah. One time I, uh, as a principal, I had one of my bosses called me and said, uh, notice I said one, that's not a misnomer. There are several, <laughs> just which level of the hierarchy you wanted to go up. And, uh, and he reached out to me and said, uh, Steve, I tried calling you today. And uh, guess what? And I said, uh, well, I, you didn't get me. And he goes, right. He goes, I tried to leave a message. Guess what? He goes, well, I said, well, I don't have my voicemail set up. He goes, right. He goes, guess what? 
I should have my voicemail set up. He goes, yes. And I said, I said, but I read this article and before I could, I had just finished reading an article that said, you know, you need to eliminate all the different places you have where people can leave messages. So you just have one place. He said, yeah, 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 whatever. Get the voicemail done by the, <laughs> the, you know, and it's like, I know what you mean. You know, you have all those different places and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And it does feel like, but you are compelled to, uh, to be on call 24 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, you know, from a, you know, I don't want to kind of take our, our podcast and go in a different direction, but, but it is interesting as a civil society, you know, there used to be a, a pretty clear boundary or wall between the private and the public sphere of life. Um, you know, when you were at work, you were at work. When you were at home, you were at home. And while the kind of blurring of that has made us infinitely more productive, it's also made us infinitely more miserable uh, by and large. This idea of, you know, you're, because in that instance, you're never not really working and you're never really ever, you know, you're, it's always a hybrid. Um, you're always on and you're always not. And I, and I don't think that's good for anybody. And it's definitely one of the ways that we're encountering for sure. You got that right. In, in Chapter 7, Identifying Divergent Teacher and Principal Perspectives, you comment, we should empathize with our administrators. This appears in a segment titled, The Ultimate Position of Powerlessness. Could you take some time to explain your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I'd never want to be a principal. Let me just say that right out. Uh, I think being a principal of a high school or an elementary school has got to be one of the most difficult jobs in America. And here's why. Because I feel like you're the meat in a sandwich, right? And so, you know, above you... You have superintendents and trustees and the governor of the state or whoever, and they'll have all these expectations and all these changes and, you know, all these things that you are accountable for. And, you know, and so you have, you have to look up. I mean, there's a lot of people above you telling you what you need to be doing. Uh, and then below you, you have a bunch of teachers and teachers have opinions. Uh, I come from a long line of teachers. My best friends are teachers. We do not lack opinions. Um, and, you know, and if we don't like something that you're doing as a principal, uh, I find that we will let you know that. Um, and so I feel like as, as, as a teacher, as somebody who's never going to go be an administrator, um, you know, I, I do feel bad sometimes for you guys because, you know, you, on one hand, you need to be absorbing uh, everything that, I mean, cause you work with your teachers. I mean, that's where you go every day. You're with, you know, those are your people, uh, but your bosses, uh, also weigh down on you. So you, you're in pressure you know, from the top and from the bottom. Um, and you're getting it on all sides. And, and I think that's a, that's why I say it's the ultimate position of powerlessness. You know, you can't, you can't tell the state of California, you can't tell your, you know, the, the superintendent of education of your state, you know what, I'm not going to do tests this year. Forget you. I think standardized testing is an awful thing. Forget you. You can't do that. And then on the other hand, you can't tell the teachers, hey, I'm your boss. You will do what I say. Uh, and I don't really want your feedback. If you want uh, a little bit of a revolt, that's the best way to do it. You got uh, that right. <laughs> you know, and so especially if you teach at a public school and they all have tenure, uh, that, you know, that can be really tough. I mean, if you're a principal, you know, if you're a new principal, it's like it's tough because you haven't hired any of these people. Uh, you can't fire any of these people. Uh, and yet you're still responsible for all of these people. Yes. Uh, that's what I mean by the ultimate position of powerlessness. And you wonder why I would have no interest in ever being a principal. Um, <laughs> and, and so I just, I, I think that there is, and so principals constantly are feeling it on top of them, right? You get all, you know, all of this stuff weighing down. Hey, this year you need to really implement this new technology, or you need to have, you know, we're going to implement these new tests, or now you need to worry about this protocol, or we have to worry about, you know, active shooters on campus and figure out what's the plan there, or we need to have more distance learning. And as a principal, well, you're told this is what you have to do. 
Uh, but then you have to forge consensus amongst the staff about how to do that. Um, and that can be very, very difficult to do. Um, and so that's, that's what I mean by that. That's, that's so right on the money. Having been a principal in different situations too, by the way, because I went to make change. And, uh, you know, when you, when you do that, that's always fun because um, generally you have a population of teachers that don't like you. You have populations of the kids who don't like you. You have a population of the community that don't like you, of parents that don't like you, uh, uh, up above you may not like you either, you know, and it's like, nice. You know, it's like, really? I asked for this? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> And it's it's an interesting dynamic there because, like you said, it's uh, trying to connect with people. I actually said to a group one time, I said, you know, one of the things that would be a lot more interesting is if I just told you this is what we're going to do and then saw what happened. <laughs> you know? Did it seem like the French Revolution when you did that? <laughs> well, they knew I was just uh, frustrated with the moment, which was nice because they said, and you're not going to do that, right? And I said, exactly, but it is a thought, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you just kind of let it go, let it go, whatever that song is. Never mind. <laughs> I um, think it's it's in Frozen. It's in there Frozen. It's, yeah, I was close. Yeah, anyway. you're, you're close. <laughs> um, so anyway, with that with with that being said, because yeah, you're right about that. That's even when I was saying a few minutes ago when I said I got multiple b bosses above me. It's like, yeah, all right. So uh, let's let's figure out something else. Let's let's go on, on page one thirty seven in chapter nine which is titled Viewing Education from a Distance. You know, but much of the tension between educators and the communities they serve is caused by a concerted effort to focus solely on the profession's failures, never on the profession's successes in the media. Could you put this in context for listeners? Absolutely. I, I get very frustrated with this notion that, you know, American schools are failing and that they're a disaster. Uh, you know, one of the things that bothers me is that, you know, you have to consider inputs. Um, you know, it's like if, if you're a, if you're a chef, um, you know, you, you, you're going to get the top quality, you know, meat and cheese and vegetables and all of this. And you're going to have all this, all these resources to create an amazing output, right? Well, you know, sometimes we get very, very difficult inputs. Uh, sometimes schools exist in tough situations, uh, with, with, and not having a lot of resources, um, and so I, I, think, I think schools, given the, the, the difficulty of their jobs, create some pretty amazing outputs. Um, and, and a few things I would say about that. First of all, American schools are very egalitarian. Uh, I am proud of the fact that, you know, kind of, you know, you, you, you have Horace Mann, you have Thomas Jefferson, you have these people who believe that American schools are the ultimate vessels of a kind of egalitarian spirit, that everybody's going to get a, a, a quality education in America. Not every country is like that. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot, you know, I'm referring of course to the PISA scores, you know, every three or four years, you have right. these international comparisons and people always like talk about how, well, Estonia does better than we do. Well, Estonia is a small, homogeneous country, you know, and they don't test everybody probably. We, and then that's the other thing is, you know, we as, as a country, you know, we test everybody. Um, you know, we make sure that students with special needs or who come from poverty, um, we make sure that they can get an education too. Um, you know, we don't just test the, you know, advanced placement students and then say, aha, look at how great we are. Um, you know, we are a, I mean, this is good and bad. We are a very self-critical country. We, we are, you know, I, almost, I would almost say we're a hypochondriac country. Right? We're always in crisis about something, right? Yes. In America. And then it can be annoying. And I think kind of it, 
it kind of ruins our civic esprit sometimes because we think we're such an awful place. But on the other hand, it means that we're constantly improving. We're taking a look at ourselves and being critical and saying, what can we do better for our most needy students? And if you ask parents, this is one of the most fascinating studies showed that if you ask parents, well, how would you, if you had to give a grade, A, B, C, D, F, right, to your children who went through schools, what grade would you give the schools of your children, their teachers, those administrators, right, the whole thing? And like 70 to 80% of teachers, would, uh, parents would say, well, I'd, I'd give them an A or a B. You know, I'm very proud and very, you know, pleased with the education. Of course, there were some bad teachers here and there, and, you know, maybe they had good years and bad years, but overall, K through 12, very happy, A, 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 a or B. But then you ask the same parents, well, what would you give the overall grade in American education? And they would say D or F. Well, that can't be, right? You can't have right. all the parents giving an A or B uh, to their own kids and then D's and F to everybody else's. And I think there's this idea that broad, in quotes, American education is failing. And yet when you look at it on a one-by-one -one basis, you know, people feel good about the educational experiences uh, their kids are having. Um, and so, you know, we also do a lot of things in American schools. You know, sports are on campus. And, and like in European countries, that's all off campus. Um, if you are having mental health issues, we deal with that on campus. In other countries, that's off campus. I mean, just the amount of things that we do in schools, the number of burdens that we take on, the difficulties, the inputs, all the things that come into us that we have to deal with and still create a pretty high quality output. I'm sorry, I'm not going to apologize. I'm proud to be an American educator. And if you want to, you know, kind of give us a, 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 you know, some, some black eyes here and there. I think maybe on there's some issues that we deserve it, fine. But we will admit that we deserve it and we'll get better. So, you know, I, I think that, that if you want to kind of cherry pick the numbers and make us look bad, you can. But I think as an institution, no institution takes on more responsibility and does more than American educators. So exclamation point on that. Love it. I, I love it. And you are, I, I just can't say enough. And, uh, you know, I applaud you on, on, on those comments there, because that is, that is something that, you know, you, it's so easy to, to smack us down, but it's like, when you see everything that goes on that, uh, that happens, that's for the good. It's like, you know, that's, that doesn't become like a newspaper reporter told me one time, he said, uh, I asked him, I said, why do you go after stories like this that don't, that, you know, it's just, you're, you're nitpicking here and there and you're doing stuff instead of looking at the stuff that's good. And, and he said, well, it's, it sells papers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Remember, remember that, you know, in the media, they say if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Right, exactly. Right? There's a fire in an abandoned building. It's not that important, but, you know, it's a great picture and it's, it's, it's lively. And so they, so they do it. So, yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I feel that frustration, uh, kind of all the, the negative publicity we get about education. It's crazy, crazy world, especially when, you know, that same time point, uh, you know, you had a couple of teachers dealing with uh, helping kids get over the passing of their parents or something, you know, oh, there's yeah. any number of things that go on besides the, uh, the content of the classroom and the, and the tests have nothing to do with that. And uh, as well as, you know, the whole aspect of getting a kid who didn't care, who now cares. Yes. Yeah. And that in itself is, is incredible. And then the kids who were up here, you know, they're at the top and they're able to do even more because they start seeing things a little differently or they, or you help broaden. I mean, there's all, all the different levels and perspectives that you deal with, with the kids, which is, which is by the way, going back to something we talked about before, it's just the cool part about working with kids. <laughs> so cool. So awesome. So, you know, 
On page 156 in chapter 10, Connecting Citizens in Schools, I love this statement. If there is one thread of truth that does not change in the long course of political history, it is this. Democracy does not work when schools do not succeed. You got to talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, my, that's my life. That's my career, right? I've, I've spent my, you know, two decades involved in American civics education. Uh, and the thing about democracy is democracy is, is hard. You know, Churchill has that great quote where he says, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones we've tried. Uh, <laughs> and democracy requires a lot of us. Um, and, it, and the thing about being an American is that, you know, unlike other countries where you have these different things that kind of yoke you together to say, well, I'm Chinese, I'm Japanese, I'm Irish, I'm Russian, I'm whatever. We don't have a language, we don't have a race, we don't have a religion, we don't have a monarchy. We don't have all of these things that bind us as Americans, right? But what we do have is this understanding of justice, uh, of what Abraham Lincoln called a proposition, um, what Jefferson called an idea. And if you believe in that idea, and if you understand that proposition, then you can be an American. Being an American is an aspirational thing. This is why immigrants make great Americans, is that if you believe in your heart this kind of vision of the country, then, then you can you know, kind of be an American. But you have to learn it, right? And that happens in the classroom. And if you don't understand all the, all the if, you can't, you know, if you can't model the different characteristics of being a citizen, um, if you don't understand our institutions of government, if you don't understand pluralism and, and separation of powers and, and freedom of speech and, and conscience and, and the idea of e equality before the law. I mean, these are all things that you learn. You're not born with them. That's my point is you're not, you have to learn how to become an American. Uh, you're not born with it. And that puts a, a huge impetus on civics education in this country. And let me tell you, some of the statistics are damning. Um, you know, 20, you know, 26% of Americans can't name a single branch of office, right? 26% um, can't name one out of the three. 10% of Americans think that Judge Judy sits on the Supreme Court. I mean, this is not good news. Um, and, and I really believe that where we model good citizenship is in the classroom. Um, and you know, I, I don't wanna get distracted, but I, I think one of the problems we have in our society today is we don't know how to have conversations with one another. Um, and if you can't have conversations then the, the mechanism of democracy breaks down. And what is that mechanism, mechanism of democracy? It's compromise, it's consensus, it's coalition building, it's you know, kind of moving from where you are and understanding where somebody else is saying, and you kind of have these meaningful accords of progress. Um, and, and if we can't do that in the classroom, you can't really expect young people to go out when they're adults and do it in civil society. Um, and so I am passionate in my belief that if, Democracy is going to work, then schools have to work. Um, you know, Jefferson has that great quote where, you know, he essentially says, you know, you, you, without education, you can't have a free society. We can't be informed. We can't, um, you know, you have to, to, have a, to have a real conversation. You have to agree that we, we are sharing an objective reality and things like facts exist. Um, and so, you know, I am passionate in my, in, in my belief that, that without education, without strong schools, you're not going to have a strong democratic culture uh, and, and uh, kind of this you know, republic that we're supposed to be involved in is not gonna flourish. I love it, because you're right on, I mean, just so, that's just, what I wanna say is, sing it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 
Because that's that's so powerful because it is. It's, it will collapse without it. The schools have to be successful. They have to put their emphasis on it because it's one of the only places in our time on this planet where you're encouraged just by the sheer nature of public school to be in and around people who are not like you. Yeah, that's so, isn't that, that's so great. I mean, if you look at our old national model, you know, e pluribus unum, uh, out of many, one. Uh, and... Uh, I think we should celebrate the pluribus. We should celebrate our diversities, celebrate our different experiences. We also have to remember that there is a civic glue. There has to be a national adhesive at some point. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of individuals pursuing our interests privately with no greater, uh, you know, aspiration in mind. And, um, you know, and, and, and so you have to learn what that, what that glue is. We have to understand, uh, you know, what, what it means to be an American. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the magical melody of America has to be, has to be taught and uh, it has to, you know, you can't, it has to be taught and it has to be caught, right, by, by the students. Right. Um, and, and so uh, it's something that really disturbs me in modern times that I, I think we have a fundamental inability uh, to have really meaningful uh, conversations. Uh, and I, I, you know, one of the things I tell my students all the time is, you know, it's really important for you to go out of your way to really try and absorb a different point of view. I mean, if if you love Bernie Sanders, turn on Fox News sometimes. And if you, if you love Donald Trump, go turn on MSNBC. And if you are a Christian, go read Nietzsche. And if you are an atheist, go read C.S. Lewis, right? Make the world bigger, right? Because most of the time you realize that most people have a perspective that is genuine given their lived experiences and it makes your life better. And we need to learn how to do that better in my opinion. Yeah, it's definitely, we got to get better at that. <laughs> that is so, so, so true. You know, we're getting close to finishing up, Jeremy. And but before we do that, I have to point out something really cool that is throughout your book. You have Ride the Wave strategies for most of the chapters. And these are available to your readers as printable reproducibles online. Could you talk about these and why you provided them? Well, I mean, we, Solution Tree provided them because, frankly, uh, people are more likely to buy the book when they need <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the printed reproducibles for free, um, nice. you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. Um, you know, this is my third book and the first time you, you have a book that comes out, it's just so exciting to have a book with your name on it. Right. And then you, by the time you get to the third book, you're thinking, you know, this is great, but I want to have an audience, nice. uh, you know, not that my first two books didn't do pretty well. They did. You know, but um, but Solution Tree is a, is a huge publisher, and they do great things, and they have a huge reach. Um, and I mean, kind of the the more idealistic answer, besides I wanted more people to buy it, is I do want the book to be actionable, right? I want it to be practical. Um, you know, and there are these five key relationships, and I want people to. You don't have to. You know, if you feel like, okay, I got myself under control. I know I know how to deal with my own issues and my own negativity and my own stress, and and I know how to deal with my principal and my dean. But you know what? I do feel like there are some tensions with my students, or I do feel like I don't know how to negotiate uh, conversations with the broader public. I wanted it to be a very practical book where you could, kind of like a laser, you could say, well, here are the problems I'm having in my career, and these chapters and these actionable um, strategies are what can really help me out. And so uh, I just want it to be, you know, I, I want teachers to say, you know, it made a difference uh, in, in, my, in my practice. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting as a teacher, you know, we don't get lots of trophies and we don't get lots of money, but once in a while you'll get a, a student who comes back or a letter that says, hey, um, you know, your, your class, you, um, you made a difference in my life. And 
I think the, the, the more you teach, I think you kind of get to maybe the third decade and you say, well, maybe I should go be a principal. Maybe I should go be an administrator. I want to kind of, I still want to make a difference, but I want to do it on a larger scale. For me, I, I'm deciding to do that through writing. And, you know, I'd like to know that there are teachers out there who feel like, look, I'm a better teacher because of something that I've read in your book. And because I'm a better teacher, I made a difference to these kids. And because these kids uh, became better students, then they're living better lives. And so I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's why, why, why we did that, why we made that available. That's awesome. And they're, they're, it's good stuff. So it is going to help your audience because they're going to go, hey, check out the free stuff I got with the book. Yes. And, yes uh, <laughs> it's very buy helpful. The buy the book too, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. The, uh, okay, Jeremy, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Jeremy Adams 6, uh, at J E R E M Y A D A M S 6. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, uh, it's no capitals, Jeremy S. Adams, 1976. Um, and if you want to email me, I mean, just, you know, uh, Google Jeremy Adams, Kern High School District or Jeremy Adams, Cal State University, Bakersfield. Um, be happy to connect to anybody who's, who's reading the book or wants to talk about things. Uh, you know, it's one of the things that I'm, you know, I love talking about education. I, I don't love self-promotion. Uh, I feel like the membrane between self-promotion and narcissism is real thin sometimes. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you for asking me that way. That way I can kind of uh, say, well, he asked me. So yeah, I'd love to have more Twitter followers. Uh, love. And, and by the way, if, if you do want to follow me, please do. I don't tweet or post stupid things. It's usually just about education. Um, you know, my articles or interesting stuff that I've read or, or announcements about my book. Excellent. And I'll make sure that uh, we'll put those in the show notes so people can uh, go back to them to, so they can reach out and uh, tweet to you or follow you or reach out and ask you some questions, which is good stuff. The, uh, the last two questions. If you had the chance to talk with an auditorium filled with brand new teachers who are getting ready to step into the classroom for the very first time, what would you want to share with them? Wow. Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I think what I would say uh, if we wanted to get really serious uh, is that someday, you know, we're all going to be uh, retired. Uh, we're all going to be on a rocking chair or someday we're all going to be on our deathbed. And at that moment, you have to take a look at your life and, and figure out if it's the kind of life that you were proud of. Um, and I, I think that teaching affords us uh, a lot of opportunities to be proud of our lives. Um, I, I, it's interesting. Uh, there was a study that came out a few years ago uh, from the AARP and they went into these nursing homes and they asked a bunch of, you know, really, really kind of elderly people, you know, what are your big regrets in life? Uh, what are your five big ones? And, um, you know, it's interesting because you'll find a lot of people who regret the amount of time they spent on their jobs uh, to the detriment of other things. But I don't hear, you know, and you hear that sometimes from athletes. I mean, if you're like Aaron Rodgers or David Duvall, you know, these famous athletes will say, you know, I reached the top of the mountain. And then I ask myself, is this it? Is this it? Is this all there is? You know what? I don't hear a lot of teachers who've been told that they made a difference in the life of a child say, is that all you got to say? Is that all you have to tell me? Um, I do feel like this is a, an amazingly almost spiritual journey we get to take uh, is, is to walk for one year in the life of a child and hope that we send them along on a higher path. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that really is. Cause that is, that is exactly what you have to be doing this for because that experience working with the kids and making that impact and because you never know how it's going to happen by the way it it may be simply that you handled things differently than what they were expecting rather than that wonderful uh session that you were giving on uh you know on you know some other yep. aspect of history yeah yeah <laughs> and uh you know it's like uh 
And it, it's just amazing that you just don't know where it's going to come from. And, you know, and one of the things I just got to say this real quickly, because if, you know, high school graduations, it's, it's sad this year for the class of 2020 not to have been able to be right there. And in some places they made it happen and they're still trying to figure it out, not to just be on computer, but, uh, you know, because one of the things that you experience there is that connectivity and that energy that's built up over those years, which is an amazing experience in and of itself is to see the, uh, <laughs> to feel that I did it and, uh, and all these people helped me do it. So good stuff. Last question. When things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once, you want to quit. How do you overcome these feelings and keep going? Uh, you know, Steve, I think it's something you just said, actually, uh, and I'd kind of like to expand on, which is, you know, whenever you feel like uh, I can't go on or what am I doing, I'm not really making a difference, I think you have to realize sometimes that you, no matter how far along you are in your career, you really never know what kid will need you wherever you are in your career, right? I mean, it, it, in the beginning of your career, you think that every student needs you, and you're going to make the ultimate difference. But it, it might be a student hears you say something in your 40th year of teaching on your last day, and that makes a difference. Um, and, and so you just, the fact that you never know what a kid's going to need uh, from you means that you should be motivated every day. Um, you should know that, uh, that they're going to, you know, we always say like, you, know, you can't control the kids that are in your classroom. That's true. You also can't control what they're going to do with what you give them, Right. <laughs> And you want to make sure it's as empowering and impassioning as possible. Uh, I mean, I, I remember about three or four years ago, I had a student. Uh, we had this event uh, in my high school where in November, you get like all the football players and all the cheerleaders and all the band members on one side of the football field and all the kids on the other side and their parents. And then the parents are on the other side and they meet at the 50-yard line and the students and the kids give a rose to their parents as a way of saying thank you, right? Senior night. And I remember I had a student a few years ago whose dad was in prison. And his mom kicked him out of the house the day he turned 18 because she just had too many kids and couldn't, you know, or, and she was sick, I believe. And, and just for a reason really couldn't take care of him anymore. And, uh, and he asked me if I would literally, I mean, this is not a figure of speech, literally stand in the place of his parents. Um, and that's one of these things I never imagined I would be asked to do uh, as a teacher. Um, and yet, uh, obviously I was happy to do it. So uh, I think that's a good metaphor for the fact that we stand in the place uh, of so many different failures of our society um, for our kids. Uh, and I think that we should continue to do so, but we're only going to do it if we can ride the wave. Awesome. Jeremy, this has been amazing talking with you again. I uh, thank you so much for spending the time with me. You know, congratulations on your, your wonderful book, Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships. I think it's the right book for now and looking forward to talking again soon. Wishing you the best in all that you do. Thank you again. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.